we had Soviet fighters, uh, MiG-29, sitting uh, on our dispersal right outside the squadron. It was the weirdest thing from being under this continual state of tension to suddenly be drinking with the Soviet pilots in our bar. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. In this episode, we welcome back Nick Anderson, who told us about his RAF service intercepting Tu-95 Soviet Bear bombers over the North Sea. The story continues with his accounts of how the Soviet aircrew tried to distract RAF planes and how he was almost downed by their tactics. We end the episode with Nick telling us about the final days of the Cold War. Now I know you're tempted to skip this next bit, but before we start I'd like to thank all our listeners who are supporting the podcast with their donations. From as little as a pound, a dollar or a ruble, they are all helping keep us on the air as well as expanding the show. Hopefully you'll have noticed our new theme music, which has been directly funded by those listeners. If you want to learn more, just head over to coldwarconversations.com and click on the support the podcast menu option to learn more. If that's not your cup of tea, then you can also help us by leaving a review in iTunes or with your favourite podcast provider. So, back to today's episode. We join my Cold War conversation with Nick Anderson. When you're taking photographs of, of these planes, how would the Soviet air crews react? They, they would certainly uh, interact with us. I mean, we were 10 or 15 feet away from them, and uh, we, we'd often wave at them and, um, you know, gesticulate. And uh, But... We'd be escorting these guys for hours on end, and it did get a little bit boring. They'd disappear off to their galley and come back with a plate of food, knowing very well that we had nothing on board to uh, eat. So uh, they would often wave a chicken leg at us and uh, in, and uh, perhaps toast us with a uh, a mug of something which we assumed was vodka, probably wasn't. Um, so uh, that was all part of the the game, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes we'd meet an aircraft where the crew wouldn't react at all to us. They just stared straight ahead. We often wondered if perhaps they had one of their political commissaires on board those. I don't, I don't know. But, um, um, you know, while, while they were just on a straightforward transit, and a lot of them were just transiting through our airspace, and we were just, you know, there monitoring them, um, you know, they weren't always on operational missions. It, it was could be a very long and tedious uh, mission for both of us. Uh, we very rarely saw the pilots. It was very hard to get close to the uh, front of the airplane because of those enormous damn props that were uh, wearing around. Um, so you could see the guys, you know, uh, you know from a wingtip, um, and, you know, you couldn't really tell their expressions. The guys we tended to see most of the time were the chaps that sat around the two rear uh, glazed blisters that were at the back of the bear. Mm. Uh, they were usually the gunners or I don't know what other functions. They Perhaps the navigators used to wander down take a look at us. Um, at the back there, there were also a pair of uh, uh, big uh, cannons 
uh, radar guided. Um, they often used to lock the radar to us, but the guns uh, always stayed centered and pointing up into the sky, indicating that they weren't uh, going to be aggressive with them. Right. And uh, we always went through a very strict set of uh, safety checks uh, at 10 miles when we were completing the intercept just to confirm that there was no way we were going to accidentally release a weapon. Because, I mean, I don't know if people realize anymore how close at times we were to um, having a conflict and how important it was for us to uh, make sure that we weren't accidentally the the blokes that started World War Three. And bearing in mind that when I first intercepted a bear, I was 24 years old, um, and we were often completely out of radio contact with uh, any of our controlling agencies uh, because we were so far from the UK. It was a, quite a responsible job, uh, considering the Cold War was, you know, still at its uh, at its peak. Yeah, no, I was going to ask you about that because I mean. How would a missile be launched? Presumably, there's various safety switches you've got to turn, or, or things like that. Or is it just press a button? It's uh, it's a surprisingly simple thing. Uh, if you're on a normal mission, we would uh, have um, the missile stations would simulate there was a real missile on. So all the indications in the cockpit were that there was a real missile there. We would have a seeker head mounted onto a sort of concrete body uh, for the missile, for the heat-seeking missile. So you can actually lock the seeker head on to a target. And every time we completed an intercept, we put the master arm on and pulled the trigger, which is what you did to fire a missile. Um, I mean, there's a vaguely amusing story, um, uh, amusing, I guess, because no one was killed, of a, uh, a poor chap. He was one of my instructors. Uh, when I went through the Phantom OCU, who was uh, flying an aircraft in Germany on an exercise, and they had a mix of armed and unarmed aircraft. And uh, he rolled in behind a Jaguar, and uh, forgetting that he was in an armed aircraft, uh, he put the master arm on and fired a live missile at this Jaguar and shot him down. Now, very luckily, the Jag pilot got out. He uh, he was actually in the instrument pattern for, I think, uh, for Bruggen. And uh, there was a damn bang, great big bang behind him, and the controls all went floppy, and his airplane started to uh, glow red as the back end uh, was on fire, and he just ejected quite safely. But, um, you know, the, the difference between an aircraft with real missiles on an aircraft with simulated uh, missiles on, were there was no difference. So... There was very little way to tell. And uh, once you're in a habit pattern, uh, in the heat of the moment, it's very easy to fall back into an old way of doing things. It was almost like a robotic uh, response. So when we were on QRA with live missiles, we had big white tape uh, stuck over the master arm, and the uh, navigator was supposed to pull the uh, trigger circuit breaker to deactivate the trigger so there was no way we could accidentally fire. But having gone through all the safety checks, uh, uh, there was very little chance we were accidentally going to uh, uh, fire a missile. But on cue, you were very aware that you're in a fully armed airplane. The chance of you forgetting were, were pretty remote. Um, so I didn't think there was much chance of us. There was the odd incident. Uh, I mean, the Russians would 
um, I say Russians, they were Soviets, uh, would uh, try to deliberately um, spoil our day, if I could put it in inverted commas. They would frequently at night uh, and at low level, while we were formating on them, uh, use a very bright um, signal lamps to shine shone directly into the cockpit to uh, blind us. Um, they would sometimes fire signal flares at us. Um, I was formating on a guy who started a gentle spiraling descent towards the ocean and then went slower and slower until I uh, I nearly stalled the aircraft and uh, only recovered by going underneath him with full burner, trying to get airspeed back very close to the water at night with the adult warning uh, shouting at me because I'd you know, allowed myself to get into that difficult situation. I, partly my fault. Uh, well, in fact, yeah, partly my fault. Mainly his, the Soviets. But they they weren't um, they weren't always uh, as friendly as you know I I paint. Uh, so th- they would definitely try and shake you off so they could get on with whatever operational task they were trying to accomplish without having you around. And, of course, nowadays uh, you see both sides complaining bitterly that uh, they're being intercepted and uh, aircraft getting too close to them. Well, I tell you, if if, uh, if there had been as many cameras around when I was doing my flying as and uh, access to the Internet as there are nowadays, uh, you'd make, make these modern photographs uh, look yeah. quite tame. Yeah, I mean, I was amazed when you said that, you know, you were like 10 feet away from the wingtip, which sounds very close. Well, if the guy's in cloud, uh, then, you know, you have to be very close to continue to see him. Uh, and uh, we, we tell the truth, we didn't often form it on the wingtip because if the guy rolled, that thing moves at quite a rate. Uh, so we'd often form it on the back end of the airplane, the tailplane, which was much easier to see. But it meant that we were very close uh, to the fuselage. Uh, and yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, you've seen the Top Gun movie, uh, with <laughs> our hero flying upside down over an aircraft. I, it's times you'd have to do that to, so the nav could get a picture of the top of the fuselage. Uh, we would, uh, roll over the top of, uh, a bear. Um, and I've done it. Uh, and, uh, you know, just to, oh, there's a new aerial. Let's see if we can get a picture of that. So you do a quick bow roll over the top and you can take a picture of the top of our canopy, uh, of the uh, top of their bear. Uh, not something we did all the time, but, uh, you know, if needs must. Uh, one of our, uh, other squadron companions, uh, famously tried to photograph up inside the dispensing bay, uh, of one of these bears, uh, who was throwing out sonar boys. And the guy fired a sonar boy, which hit the phantom, bounced off the fuselage, and got tangled up in the uh, in the fin. And uh, I think it was Dave Wood, a uh, lovely guy, Pecker, um, who uh, then thought, "Oh, this is uh, interesting. I've got one of these sonar boys hanging off the back end of my airplane. I wonder if I can take it home." And he he tried to take this thing all the way back to Lucas, but sadly, the um, the sort of nylon uh, stringers of the the drogue that this sonar boy uh, deployed that tangled up in his tail wore through and it fell off wow. before he got home. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. 
I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. But, I mean, yeah, it was... Uh... There weren't that many rules, quite honestly. Uh, we weren't given any real um, indications of what to do and what not to do. Uh, we were, you know, we were there to do a job, and we made certainly made sure that our presence was felt. And it wasn't just bears we intercepted. We uh, used to uh, you know, sometimes intercept uh, badgers and bison and coots, so all uh, either maritime. Uh, uh, E. Lint aircraft or uh, bombers, um, and sometimes we'd launch for the the new backfires that they'd built, uh, but we never actually got as far as intercepting them. They always turned back. Or certainly in my time, I don't know since then. But uh, and what what's the closest they they got to when you would have had to like warn them off and say no further? Well, the the closest they could really come was just a handful of miles from our coast. So, you know, you, you can't claim airspace that uh, is uh, not over your coast or within your um, uh, within the illegal waters. Uh, so I think it's 12 miles, uh, the, uh, as I recall. Uh, we would uh, start, but if they'd come that close, uh, we would have made a much bigger presence probably launched a few more aircraft and they didn't they uh they occasionally came down amongst amongst the uh, northern isles but uh, quite honestly they've been a lot more aggressive recently with their forays down the english channel which have been as you know upset civil air traffic considerably um no we we met them usually out uh, a long way from the uk with nothing but hundreds of miles of ocean around us just uh us and the Soviets doing our thing. Um, yeah. And uh, we, we, of course, they're in international waters out there, so there's nothing that we would do. And even if they decided they were going to fly across the UK, uh, I don't think that was sufficient grounds to shoot them down um, unless the government had suddenly decided that uh, they wanted to make a point. Uh, you know, the Soviets uh, shot down... Uh, Remember that Korean 747? Uh, they yeah, KAL 007. That's the one. Uh, they uh, thought, in inverted commas, it was a, uh, an American spy plane uh, and decided to shoot it down. The fact that it was obviously a civil airliner um, didn't seem to matter to them. So they weren't uh, – well, they'd done some things like that and gone down very badly. I think if we had done something in reverse, it would have – and we'd have lost the moral high ground. Uh, and it, uh, I think there's any point in starting a war over uh, one yeah. you know, intercept that goes on and carries on over the UK. Well, and also a mis- misidentification, because, I mean, wasn't there that case with the USS Vincennes in the Gulf 
where they shot down a Iranian Airbus. That's right, thinking it was an F-14, an Iranian F-14. Yeah. Yes, and it, these things happen, and they just leave a bitter taste in your mouth because you think to yourself, uh, you know, you, you can only take a defense of your position so far, and then you, you realize that, no, you, you can't take the risk of killing hundreds of people, uh, innocent civilians, Um uh, by overstepping the mark, as it were. And all that's a matter of judgment, and I'm not going to say that they were wrong in doing that, but um, I think we took a very careful view towards the possibility of uh, starting the next war because, quite honestly, it was the only thing that was on our minds at that point. It was it was an all-encompassing threat, and the entire of the Air Force's resources were uh, aimed at uh, controlling or trying to control the Soviet threat should they decide to uh, attack the West. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I remember, I think in the 80s, there was a, a Soviet jet that got into trouble over East Germany and the pilot ejected and the plane didn't come down in East Germany and continued into NATO airspace. I think it ended up coming down in Belgium. Interesting. Um, I, I mean, I know there were a few, a few defections as well. Um, I don't know if there are many over Germany, but uh, certainly there was a Foxbat uh, in Japan that uh, a chap defected and took his MiG-25 uh, from Soviet airspace and landed it in Japan. And he um, remained there, and the aircraft was stripped down by the uh, Americans and returned to the Soviets some weeks later in a number of packing cases. Um, so these things did happen. Um, yeah. And it, it was all, you know, a case of tit for tat. Um, and, uh, you know, we were always trying to get an edge. Uh, you've talked about uh, Bricksmiths and the uh, amazing job that uh, uh, our guys did trying to keep an eye on new Soviet equipment, including flying little chipmunks out of uh, Gatow in Berlin, uh, photographing uh, and the Pembrokes that used to go up and down the uh, Berlin air corridors, photographing equipment uh, whenever they could. That was uh, a remarkable thing, just trying to keep an eye on what was going on. It was any anything we could do to get an edge uh, over over um, the, the Soviet advancements. Uh, yeah, but yeah. Uh, it was a weird thing for me because I mean, I I spent uh, two three. Two and a bit tours doing nothing but uh, um, monitoring that airspace and doing all the other jobs that we did in the Phantom. Um, and then uh, I was lucky enough to uh, get an exchange job with the Australian Air Force flying F-18s. Now, that was a fantastic opportunity. I loved it. Um, and when I came back, uh, the Cold War was more or less over. Uh, you know, the wall had come down. and um, I remember we were, um, I was posted back to the, my old base, RAF Lucas in Scotland, this time on Trouble One Squadron. And uh, we were um, restarting the squadron uh, with brand new um, ADV, Air Defense Variant Tornadoes, the F3. And uh, uh, we had an air show annually. And the first air show we had, we had Soviet fighters, uh, uh, MiG-29s, sitting uh, on our dispersal right outside the squadron. And uh, we were crawling all over these airplanes. These were airplanes that we had only ever really seen in grainy black and white pictures. And uh, we had 
uh, our best guess at their performance uh, capabilities in top secret manuals in our squadrons. But here we were climbing over them. It was the weirdest thing to, you know, from being under this continual state of tension to suddenly be uh, drinking with the Soviet pilots in our bar. We couldn't do much other than toast each other and uh, and drink lots because we couldn't understand a word they were saying and uh, pretty much vice versa. But uh, that, for me, was the funniest, strangest thing that I've probably ever experienced in my life. I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about that because I was aware you were around at the end, end of the Cold War, and and I was gonna ask you if you'd um, met any uh, Soviet aircrew. I mean, that must have been. I'd, I'll have to see if I can find some photos of those MiG twenty nines on. Uh, on the base uh, yeah i've got some I, I took pictures of both the aircraft uh, and their uh, transport and i've even got a picture inside the cockpit of these things and uh and we swapped uh badges i mean these guys came across uh from a country that was pretty much bankrupt and uh they uh, <laughs> they've been given a tiny amount of sort of pocket money uh so uh the base was providing them with free accommodation, and we were basically buying them drinks all night. Uh, and um, in thanks, they were tearing off the badges from their flying suits to give to us. So I, I've got one of these Soviet pilots' uh, badges, and uh, I still look at that and think well, that was a that was a weird time. Um, you know, it, you you do share a certain camaraderie with someone regardless of the weather the fact he might be a potential enemy because you're doing the same sort of job you're both in the military you both uh, have the potential to um, kill or be killed uh, that's what it's all about so you you do share that that element um, of uh, being both um, in the profession of arms which creates a certain amount of camaraderie not that I think would either of us would have ever um, balked at the fact that we would, you know, one one day perhaps pull the trigger on each other. That didn't really, uh, you'd never stop to think twice uh, before doing that if you had to. But the fact that we were uh, toasting these guys and trying to learn Russian toasts and, you know, playing silly games in the mess, uh, I, I I thought that <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. Uh, apart from the fact it was a great relief because for years we'd been under this threat and it, all of a sudden, it seemed to have disappeared nearly overnight. Yeah, yeah, no, ab absolutely. And um, did you let them look at your aircraft as well in the same way that you were able to look over the MiG-29s? I am not sure. I never showed <laughs> <laughs> anyone round of one of our aircraft, but it wouldn't have surprised me if, uh, if they had been allowed. Uh, mind you, not that there was any great, secrets in the uh in the f3 tornado it was not my favorite airplane and was uh um how do i put this uh politely it wasn't exactly considered a top-notch fighter uh it was a fine interceptor and uh you can't gain too much intelligence from just looking at a bunch of switches uh you really do need to know all the technical uh, background of uh, frequencies and uh, PRFs and, uh, you know, um, carrier wave frequencies and missile range and motor burn lengths, all those kind of things are the mm -hmm. things that give you a tactical edge. Just 
looking inside the cockpit usually doesn't yeah. do much. And you'd only know but, that from uh, flying no, I, one, I presume. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, of course, as soon as the, we could, NATO got hold of all the East German uh, fighters uh, and promptly started flying them around, trying to work out, you know, uh, what we could do if we ended up fighting uh, the Russians uh, who on other countries who had these airplanes, uh, since East Germany was now uh, on our side, as it were. So I think there was a lot of intelligence gained uh, after the wall came down, and these aircraft were made available. Um, but uh, the Americans were pretty good at getting hold of Soviet equipment from all sorts of uh, places, and uh, they used to have a little uh, base in America. I say a little. There was a base in America where a lot of these aircraft were kept and uh, were flown uh, in combat with uh, against American aircraft so that they knew just who would be uh, the winner come the real day. Yeah, because the, the MiG-29 was the only Soviet aircraft that I think the uh, the Bund- well, the Luftwaffe took on after reunification, wasn't it? Well, it's a pretty impressive airplane. I seem to, I'm trying to think of the name of the formation team that came across with these airplanes, but they transited across from Moscow, unrefueled, so no airway refueling. They uh, did a couple of displays over the base and then promptly told everyone they were still a bit heavy to land. So they went off into the local area and did aerobatics and stuff for another half an hour until they said, they're okay, we're, we're light now. And we looked at them and went, how the hell have they done that? What kind of range do these airplanes have? So uh, we were quite taken aback with uh, the quality of uh, their performance. Mm. Uh, when you looked at the airframes, they were still built in that same rather crude way that the Soviets did. You know, everything was a bit um, bashed up, the you know, rivet heads, and it all looked a little bit... Uh, um, Tired? <laughs> mic- yeah, well, not so much tires, just badly put together, <laughs> quite honestly. But the fact was it didn't really matter whether all the seams were perfectly straight. Uh, if it got to the uh, fight and find a decent missile and shot you down, yeah, well, that's pretty irrelevant. <laughs> does it really matter? <laughs> exactly. Yes, And exactly. so uh, at the at the end of the Cold War, you, you were still um, operational. Did you serve in the Gulf War? I had decided uh, – that I was going to retire uh, at the end of my flight commander tour with Trouble One Squadron on the Tornado. I was a bit disillusioned with the Tornado, to be absolutely uh, plain. I'd come uh, back from the Australian uh, Air Force where they flew F-18s, and I'd had a marvellous three years on that machine. And when I came back in and and, uh, experienced the F-3, I was, uh, to say I was disappointed was, it's probably an exaggeration. I was dismayed. Um, so I thought, well, I'm getting on a bit. I've done this job for quite a few years now. Probably uh, time for me to go. Uh, I wasn't terribly keen to uh, try and progress up the slippery pole and get myself promoted, uh, you know, uh, inevitably up to mm. desk jobs. Um, so I decided I was, if I was going to continue to use my skill as a pilot, I would need to move on to a different kind of flying job. So, yeah, I decided to come out, and um, having made that decision, I was basically uh, waiting out my last year, and the Gulf War started. So, um, you know, that was it. I, I left halfway through uh, the first Gulf War, which actually made getting a job in 
Civvy Street pretty damned hard because the airline industry took an enormous hit during the Gulf War um, with uh, lack of confidence in mm. uh, flying uh, and uh, no, uh, uh, very few airlines were recruiting. Uh, Dan Air had gone bust and there were a lot of pilots kicking around with no jobs. So uh, it was a bit of a, a, a difficult time just for a while, but Eventually, I got a job with a decent airline and uh, haven't really looked back, certainly from a flying point of view. I mean, I enjoyed my time, don't get me wrong. I had 19 years in the Air Force from uh, a very young man uh, up to quite a mature chap and uh, left just before I needed reading glasses. So I thought that was a fine time to leave. And I, I understand at the moment you're you're still an, an airline pilot. I mean, I'd, it must be interesting in in terms of you know you've flown fast jets and now you're flying an airliner I d- and and you'll probably hate this comparison but it must be a bit like driving a bus versus driving a sports car oh that that's exactly what it is but uh, i mean i think everyone who uh, drives a, a a fast car must realize that uh, as they get on in life, uh, their reflexes are not going to be as good and they're not going to uh, push it quite as hard as they used to. So they're never going to be quite as effective as they were than when they were uh, a young man. It's definitely a young man's job, that sort of thing. I know the uh, the F-18 could sustain 7.8G or almost as long as it had fuel. And uh, I was in my you know mid to late 30s when I was flying that. And that was a hard work. A yeah. job if you were going to, uh, you know, fight some of the young uh, um, guys who spent all day in the gym. About the only exercise I did was lifting my pint at the end of the day. <laughs> um, you know, I, I had to use all the tricks I had up my sleeve to to uh, defeat some of these youngsters. Um, so yeah, I, I I saw the writing on the wall. I mean, uh, it's fun flying these airplanes; fantastic fun. But um, you know, being an airline pilot is not really there's not a lot of flying skill required. Uh, you, you, everything you do is uh, requires only a basic level of skill. What you are more is a uh, is a people and person manager. You you're looking after a small village that's uh, uh, being taken halfway around the world. You've got a uh, you know hundreds of people uh, under your care, and that is a, a high level of responsibility. Uh, so yes, it's it's much more a strategic job. And it is uh, the sort of dynamic flying you get in the Air Force. But having said that, there it does have its own level of reward, both professionally as well as financially. So uh, it, it's not a, a bad profession at all. And I, I you know, thank uh, uh, everybody and everything that has given me an opportunity to fly right up to the point of retirement. Uh, and when I go in uh, five months, six months' time, uh, it'll have been 45 years of professional flying. I, I just love the fact that I've been able to do it so wow. long and have uh, yeah, I've enjoyed every moment. How many it. hours of flying is that? Do you know? Uh, you know what? Between you, me, and the defense <laughs> post, I stopped counting a long time ago. Um, I'm sure the CAA will be uh, phoning me up tomorrow morning going, uh, Mr. Anderson, we'd like to see your logbook. That's all right. I can delay um, this going out for six months. but seriously yeah yeah it it no longer becomes important i I mean my father was an airline pilot flew over thirty thousand hours 
but with the hours uh, restrictions, because we have uh, we're a little bit more attuned to levels of fatigue, uh, I would have I would have guessed around twenty thousand, twenty five thousand, somewhere around there. But yeah, uh, not absolutely sure. Wow. I'm afraid. Well, Nick, it's been fantastic talking to you. I really appreciate what what you shared with us. Um, uh, you have your own podcast. Can you uh, tell our listeners where they can find more about you? Oh, sure. I, I wish I could lay claim to it. But uh, the lovely Captain Jeff uh, started it off many years ago, and I'm just one of uh, his co-hosts. Uh, the podcast's called The Airline Pilot Guy, and you can find us on any uh, decent podcast catching uh, app, uh, or we've got a lovely uh, website at uh, airlinepilotguide.com. But my little uh, treasure in that show, apart from being a co-host, is to do my own little historic piece uh, called Plain Tales. And it's they're just short little stories taken from all aspects of flying, uh, both uh, you know up-to-date and quite historic, personal recollections, uh, stories of old, and, uh, you know, accidents and anything that uh, sort of uh, features and, and tickles my fancy from an aviation point of view. And that is uh, part of the show, but there is a separate feed you can find on our website, and those are called Plain Tales. And there's some great Cold War stories on there. I mean, the one that I was immediately attracted to was the Bricksmiths one about the chipmunk flights and uh... Uh, yeah i know i i hadn't heard about that i found out about that by accident and i was immediately taken by the fact that we used to have a spy plane and it was a chipmunk isn't that wonderful (laughs) well i was intrigued by the odd bullet hole that they ended up with as well and uh yes i often wonder how accurate those claims were because uh you know, you there's very they they're still quite tight mouthed about uh, what they got up to and things. But yes, I've certainly seen pictures that they took of uh, Soviet uh, soldiers on the ground aiming their weapons at them. So it wouldn't surprise me yeah. at all. Yeah. Well, Nick, thank you. Um, I've taken enough of your time this evening, um, but really appreciate your time. That was really interesting. I'm very glad you enjoyed it, and the pleasure has uh, been all mine. It's an absolute delight, and I wish you well with this fantastic podcast. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. And I I wish you the same with uh, Plain Tales as well. Well, that's it for today's episode. Don't forget to visit the show notes at coldwarconversations.com where there's further details of this week's episode and photos of those MiG-29s at Nick's REF base. If you can't wait for our next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners, just like you, continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. We're also keen to chat with you on Twitter. Our handle on there is at Cold War Pod, and we're also on Instagram at Cold War Conversations. Thank you very much for listening. It's really appreciated. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.